Would you turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6? If you don't have a Bible, you can find Matthew 6 on page 787 in the blue Bibles under the chairs in front of you. We have uh, taken a couple of weeks off from the Lord's Prayer because of Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, but we're picking right back up. We're finishing the Lord's Prayer, not this Sunday, but actually next Sunday, and the series will continue after that, the Lord's Prayer and Praise. Um, This prayer, we said, is Jesus' answer to the disciples asking Him to teach them to pray. And the prayer starts with an emphasis on praise. First, our Father, that gives us a sense of access that we have before the throne room, as Lee put it. The Son has earned us access through His death and resurrection. And this Father in heaven is, uh, His name is to be hallowed, it's to be set apart, treated differently from any other name. It makes perfect sense then that His kingdom and His will should be our greatest desires. That praise emphasis is fully one half of the entire prayer. And then there's prayer for provision, for daily bread, for pardon, forgiveness of sin, and then protection, uh, lead us not into temptation, last time we were in this series, and then today, deliver us from evil itself. If we look at this prayer as answers to questions from God, as J.I. Packer, an author, put it, we would find this kind of structure flowing through the the Lord's Prayer. Who do you take me for and what am I to you? We would answer, our Father in heaven. That being so, what is it that you really want most? We would say the hallowing of your name, the coming of your kingdom, to see your will known and done. So what are you asking for right now as a means to that end? Lord, we are asking for provision, pardon. And then finally, if God were to ask, how can you be so bold and confident in asking for these things? We might say, because we know you can do it, and when you do it, it will bring you glory. That'll be next week's topic, the addendum that we pray, thine is the kingdom power and the glory. Let's read Matthew 6, starting in verse 9. Listen carefully. These are God's words. This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for this prayer. Thank you that it leads us to understand that we have access to your very presence, that we're invited to ask for things that we need, that we are reminded of who you are. So through your spirit again and by this word, open our eyes to see and ears to hear which you would have to speak to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's very unpresbyterian of me, but four points this morning. The first one is going to be very brief. Temptation and evil. Briefly because we're looking at the second half of a thought today separated by three weeks. Not ideal, 
But um, in that last message, I noted that God does not tempt people, but He does test His people. Trials can become opportunities to strengthen our faith. So James chapter 1 tells us, um, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So Jesus is teaching us to pray not that God would stop dangling the bait of sin in front of us, tempting us. Don't you want this? God doesn't do that. Jesus is teaching us to pray instead that God would graciously lead us away from vulnerable situations, from circumstances that would present our sinful desires with an opportunity to sort of flourish and give birth to death. God, protect us from ourselves, we might say this prayer saying, from weakness to temptation and deliver us from evil. So, what is evil? Who or what is the enemy from which we are praying to be delivered? That's our second point, the nature of evil. When you think about deliver us from evil, what comes to mind? I think most of us picture a face of evil, like the latest lone wolf terrorist who is gunning down people, innocent people, randomly in the name of some extremist ideology or, or a masked leader of ISIS or a serial pedophile or some world leader that we're worried about going off the rails like Kim Jong-un. Evil gets us angry. Evil leads us to demand justice. And if we're honest with ourselves, sometimes evil leads us to desire a little bit of vengeance on top of justice and righteousness. It's interesting, in contrast, that the Anglican prayer book um, treats this single line in the Lord's Prayer by expanding it into five petitions, asking for deliverance from sin, from the crafts and assaults of the devil, from all blindness of heart, from pride, vainglory, and hypocrisy, from envy, hatred, and malice, and all uncharitableness, from fornication and all other deadly sin, and from all the deceits of the world, the flesh and the devil, from sudden death, not meaning a heart attack, but from being unprepared, from uh, not expecting it, and lastly, from hardness of heart and contempt of God's Word and commandments. That's a very different take on evil, isn't it? Very little of it has to do with stuff outside of ourselves, really just two references, the world and the devil. Everything else is internal. Everything else is our own sin nature that's prone to wander, that is too often fertile soil in which the seeds of sin can easily sprout and give birth. I'd ask you, as I ask myself, do you really believe that? When you think about evil and the prayer to deliver us from evil, do you, do you, would, you really, would you actually say that you can't fathom that the idea of evil at all applies to you because you're a decent person? After all, you're in church on a Sunday morning and not causing trouble. You're seeking good. You're seeking the face of God. Um, Evil applies to those folks who we pointed to earlier, the face of terror, those people. But, 
But let me share something that is even more to the point. I would say this, that Scripture says very clearly throughout the Bible, you can't and you won't grow at all spiritually until and unless you look in the mirror and more fully see the reality of and depth of your personal sin. There's no spiritual growth without that. There's no spiritual growth without praying, deliver us from evil and realizing so much of that evil is right here, not just out there, not on the news. Look, I'm not saying that you're as bad as an ISIS soldier. I'm not saying that. But the same root of sinful desire lurks in your heart. And if it has not exploded into destructive um, actions and words, that is the grace of God in your life. We tend to think of evil in terms of the worst of humanity. And, and this is the progression of our typical thinking. She's naughty, he's bad, but that's evil, right? There's a progression of, of bad to worse to absolute worst. And, and we tend to, to reserve that term evil for the worst of the worst. But in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, in the Hebrew and the Greek of the original Scriptures, the word that's translated evil can simply be translated as bad, as corrupt. There's a moral context. Does what you do, say, and think come from God? Does it honor God? Does it reflect something of His perfect character? If not, then evil, bad, corrupt is an accurate description of what's going on in your life. It doesn't take ISIS it doesn't take terrorism. It doesn't take serial killer kind of degree for us to realize that deliver us from evil has a lot of inward application. By the way, have you noticed that the way we typically say the Lord's Prayer is slightly different than what we find here in Matthew chapter 6? Um, it, it has actually um, messed me up a couple of times in reciting the Lord's Prayer because I've been reading this out loud to you in, in advance of each sermon and looking it over every week. Some translations, for example, like the NIV that we use, say, deliver us from the evil one. We don't say that in our prayer. Which is it? Is it deliverance from Satan who personifies evil, the evil one, or is it deliverance from evil in general? And the answer is both. The word can be translated as a specific or as a general. And it's not important, I'd say, which way we choose, because evil desires do reside in our hearts, and Satan is absolutely at work interacting with those evil desires. This is how the two come together. Sin is by nature deceptive. Sin um, tricks us into thinking, uh, into believing lies that... Uh, about what will make us happy, what will satisfy, what will fulfill. And that pattern goes way back to the Garden of Eden. Did God really say this? And that's how Satan um, tends to operate. One of his primary strategies comes from one of his titles, the deceiver. Did God really say that? And his strategy is to nurture the seed of sin that's already present in us to deceive us into thinking that allowing it to flourish, to flower, to grow is what will make us happy. 
more of that, whatever that may be, in our lives. So there's evil outside. Satan's at work. Other sinners are influencing us, and there's evil inside. None of that grabs hold of us unless there's evil desire already at work. I prefer praying what we tend to pray, what we'll put on the screen, I believe, at the end of the sermon, deliver us from evil. Because deliver us from the evil one might tempt us to put all of our focus on Satan when an an outside evil, deliver me from that, deliver me from him when evil is outside and inside of us. We need to be wary of both. How do we respond to evil? Thirdly, last Sunday was Easter Sunday. Seems like a, a long time ago. A day of celebration, a day of feasting. But we heard Cedar's grace story, which was raw and emotional and at times painful. And I shared why I didn't think there was any disconnect between the day and the story. Because we are all fallen. The dysfunction and brokenness um, of our lives, some of it uh, uh, others sinning against us, some of it us sinning against others, adding our own sin to the toxic mix. If sin affects us to the very depths of our being, if sin uh, impacts our world in every aspect and nothing escapes its corrupting influence, then we need deliverance that comes through resurrection power, making the dead alive renewing what has gone wrong with God's creation and our own hearts. Resurrection Day is a perfect day to talk about our brokenness. That's why we have a healing service on Resurrection Sunday. How are we ailing? What is not right? Resurrection promises to make all things new. Not all right now in the here and now, but in God's promises, consummating on the last day. So when we encounter evil, whether in us or outside of us, what do we do about it? How do we respond to it? Here are four wrong approaches to evil. Number one is stick your head in the sand. Ignore it. Pretend it's not there. Uh, minimize it. Or, or say that evil doesn't matter because you happen to be unaffected at the moment. Second wrong approach is uh, to let evil overcome you to feel helpless in the face of evil, to expect evil to affect everything, to to give in to paranoia. It's going to get you. A third wrong approach is um, self-righteousness, imitating the Pharisee in thinking or even saying, Lord, I thank you that I am not like those bad people over there. Self-righteousness fills you with a sense of superiority. I, I, I screw up. I'm not perfect, but I'm not like that. To this person, evil is always outside and very seldom inside. So the solution is just avoid the bad people, however you may categorize those people, and stick to the good. Stick to the holy ones. Stick to people who do the right thing just like you do. Fourth wrong approach would be triumphalism. Expecting that everything will be instantly fixed. That resurrection promises and realities will all come here and now. And so you pray and you quote Scripture and you expect evil to instantly go away. Number two, underemphasizes resurrection power. 
it forgets that Jesus has walked out of the grave in triumph over sin and death. And number four, overemphasizes resurrection because God doesn't mean that all of evil and all of its influences are instantly vanquished. He's at work, yes, through His people, putting sin to death, pushing away its effects. In order to respond properly to evil, we need balance. I was recently reminded of an old bio lesson, maybe from high school, the sympathetic nervous system. Uh, That controls what's often called the fight or flight response, and it's automatic. And so, for example, if you're walking to your car late at night, no one's around, it's quiet, and all of a sudden you hear footsteps. The sympathetic nervous system kicks in without you even knowing. It's automatic. Your heart rate goes up. You get a shot of adrenaline. You you have a heightened heightened set of senses, including awareness. If it's just your neighbor walking her dog because she can't sleep at night, things calm down pretty quickly. You say hi. You wonder what each other is doing out that late. You calm down. But if a stranger starts approaching you, saying nothing, You stay in that heightened state of um, stimulation, right? Ready to fight, ready to defend yourself, fearing what will happen in that moment. Um, By the way, I was um, reminded through the uh, Empowered to Connect simulcast, which uh, Karen has led uh, a couple weeks ago, I was able to attend the first part of that. And uh, we're replaying the simulcast this Friday and Saturday. And it is a big commitment, folks, but let me tell you, it is such rich stuff. If you can attend any part of it, email Karen, karen at graceredeemer.com. Ask her how you can you know, show up for whatever portion of Friday 10 to 6 and Saturday 10 to 6. Is that right? Um, and you, you don't have to be involved in adoption foster care to profit. I, I wish I could have stayed the entire time. Incredible stuff that you'll really benefit from right here um, Friday and Saturday. But... Um, One talk pointed out how so many kids in the brokenness of their home environment grow up in this constant state of danger and crisis and fear. The sympathetic nervous system is is always active and never able to calm down. And the results on their development are devastating and they're heartbreaking, heartbreaking. Even without that context of children in broken families, I think we can all understand this. For example, if you have constant stress in your job, over time it wears you down. You have a hard time relaxing. Maybe you develop um, ulcers, migraines, neck pain. Um, you, You can't relax. Maybe it leads to high blood pressure. You need balance. It's not that the sympathetic nervous system has gone bad. God designed it for a purpose, partly protective. But spiritually speaking, our sympathetic response is too often too weak. There's not enough appropriate alarm at the effects of sin, at the deadly nature of idolatries that are out to get you. There isn't enough concern about how little our kids are discipled in the home by parents, or how weak prayer is in the church. I guess Donald's pastor dad's church was afflicted with the same weakness in prayer as we are. 
Instead, there's alarm about lesser secondary things. Here's an example uh, I think many of us are aware of. The, the news and social media, uh, maybe a couple of weeks ago at this point, had everybody thinking about and talking about a guy getting kicked off an airplane. Appropriate alarm that that happened. But hardly anyone talked about Christians in Egypt getting slaughtered on Palm Sunday. Isn't there something wrong with the, 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 the degree of alarm and the direction of attention giving to, given to two things that were appropriately alarming? We appropriately express outrage at three people getting killed in a racial tirade in Fresno, California. That's appropriate. But where's the outrage on an ongoing basis from children dying of malnutrition and lack of basic medicine? and war, or 400,000 kids in the U.S. who are stuck in the foster system who will never have, or too many who will never have, permanent families. We appropriately react to corruption in government, to wasteful spending. That's appropriate. But where's the alarm about biblical illiteracy? Where's the alarm about how many millennials are turning away from the church after they leave home? We need to see the reality of spiritual warfare and appreciate what's really at stake to understand what Paul is saying in in Ephesians chapter 6 when he writes about spiritual warfare. He says, Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. We can't just go about our everyday lives focused on the latest Netflix release or the cool viral video that everyone's talking about or thumbing through our Facebook and Instagram feeds for hours at a time. Enjoy some of that. But if you immerse yourself in it, you'll completely miss the battle raging for souls, including your own. Satan would love nothing better than to tease you away from a vital relationship with Christ with a breadcrumb trail of entertainment and recreation and prosperity and interesting but trivial tidbits of life. I think of John Piper in his book, Don't Waste Your Life. He paints a picture of people spending their retirement picking up seashells on the beach and then standing before the throne room of the king and being asked how they invested themselves and all they have is a pile of seashells. And, and Piper says, how shameful that would be. How shameful would it be that we stand before the throne and say, well, um, I, I, I was a connoisseur of, of uh, dumb animal videos on YouTube. Every single one of them, Lord, I watched repeatedly and shared with all my friends and comment how shameful that would be. But don't we waste so much of our lives on these interesting but trivial tidbits rather than being engaged in the battle for souls, including our own. Deliver us from evil. It recognizes the reality of evil outside and in us. It sees its deadly power 
but deliver us from evil as a prayer, as a request, also looks heavenward to claim by faith the only rescue and deliverance that is possible through resurrection power. This part of the prayer is a lifeline, not just a bunch of religious words. British pastor N.T. Wright says this, This is part of the prayer for the kingdom. It is the prayer that the forces of destruction, of dehumanization, of anti-creation, of anti-redemption may be bound and gagged and that God's good world may escape from being sucked down into their morass. Do we even think in these terms if we're not engaged in the battle? Lastly, where does the power for deliverance come from? When we looked at the first part of the phrase, lead us not into temptation, um, I pointed to Jesus' prayer of agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. And one of the things He said to His disciples was, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. If you're like me, I always thought, you know, just stay awake, guys. <laughs> Don't fall asleep. You know, fight drowsiness. That's, that, that's all I've ever thought of Jesus saying, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. But I've come to realize that His warning was so much more than don't fall asleep because Jesus was preparing to stare straight into the face of pure evil. And He needed His comrades with Him. When Cedar and I um, and Matthew lived in Mississippi, we experienced a couple of real tornado warnings. The warning means there's a twister on the ground that's been sighted near you. And um, sirens went off, the sky went dark as early evening, and when you're in a tornado warning, you don't fall asleep watching TV on the couch. You're on high alert, you huddle in an inside bathroom, you, you have a pillow to lie down on, you, you have flashlights, you, you're listening to the emergency radio, you're trying to figure out whether the... Um, that the path of the twister is coming in your direction. You, you suddenly find yourself thinking about the construction techniques of roofs, you know, and, and materials and hardware. Sympathetic response, a heightened sense of stimulation. But on a normal rainy April afternoon like yesterday, you could easily fall asleep on the couch, couldn't you? You see, the disciples watch and pray that you don't fall into temptation, guys. The disciples still didn't understand the final stage of spiritual warfare Jesus was engaged in. They missed it. This was the championship round. This was God versus Satan, good versus evil, light versus darkness, and Jesus was walking straight into the teeth of danger, of hell of all of the dark spiritual forces that Paul is warning us to guard against with spiritual armor. The disciples didn't get it. Jesus had to tell them, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Falling asleep was just the symptom. They needed to be in the battle. They needed to be counterattacking the enemy with prayer as their greatest weapon. This wasn't about drowsiness. This was about being completely clueless that they were at war. I'll say this again, as I did three weeks ago. Jesus gave this Lord's Prayer to His disciples 
But when he prayed along those same lines, the answer from the Father was a clear and firm no. No, my son. You, would actually, you will actually be led to ultimate testing and temptation on the cross. And no, my son, I will not deliver you from evil. The Father had to say, I will deliver you to evil in order that you may walk in the path of sinful people to pay the price of their sin, to suffer hell for our dysfunctions, our brokenness, our rebellion, our unfaithfulness. That shocking act of self-sacrifice on behalf of His people provides the power for deliverance. That's how we can even pray this prayer, deliver us from evil and know that it is a reality because Jesus went to the cross and Jesus walked out of the tomb. If you trust in Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior, fully God and fully man, then you can and you will be delivered ultimately from all that is evil, all that is not God, all that is of sin and death, and there will only be life, gloriously so. And because He won that victory, we can say, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you were not delivered over from evil. You were delivered over to evil. And we marvel at your willingness to take our place. And we adore you and praise you this day. We continue to bask in resurrection grace knowing that you have won victory and you give us that victory over sin and death. We claim it by faith. And we now pray just as you taught your disciples using these words. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever.